Should I use my beast voice for this one? Sure. I disgust you. You find me repulsive. I cannot lie, beast. Everything here is at your command. I don't feel at ease in all this finery, and I'm not used to being waited on. But I sense you are doing everything possible to help me forget your ugliness. I have a good heart, but I am a monster. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowley. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 73, which is Erica's choice. Let's find out what she has in store for us. I have chosen La Belle et la Bête, or Beauty and the Beast, from 1946, directed by Jean Cocteau with Josette Day and Jean Marais. It's an adaptation of the 1757 story Beauty and the Beast, written by Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont. I probably don't really need to say what it's about at this point, but I will quickly. A young woman takes her father's place with a devil's bargain in a mysterious castle, inhabited by an even more mysterious beast. Now you say you don't have to give a synopsis for it. Is that because you think everyone is more familiar with the Disney or the fairy tale in general? I would say with any of those things, because I certainly knew the story before the Disney film ever came out. And I guess I just take it for granted that somebody has seen or read something about it. But my guess is there are still people out there who haven't seen this version, and I can't wait to talk about it. We begin with the erasing chalkboard of credits. We see a number of those really neat cocteau illustrations throughout. And I was struck in this viewing because it had been a number of years since I had last seen it. How many connections there are from our other selections, a number of which I'll be mentioning. I think this is a truly wonderful and almost giddy effect. It really put me in the mood to feel happy right away. And then we have that voiceover that tells us what is expected of us, the audience. We should bring a childlike simplicity to this viewing. We should cast our minds back to that time when once upon a time could be spoken to us and that was enough to fire our imaginations. It struck me too. I really love this opening sequence. And what occurred to me this time is that he's introducing himself to us with this somewhat groundbreaking approach to the introductory material of the film. It seemed so un-Hollywood watching it this time in the way that it acknowledges the filmmaking process and it counterintuitively takes you out of the movie right away. And there, I think, is where he is staking his claim. There are and will continue to be many iterations of this story but this one belongs to Jean Cocteau. Does it feel to you like he is asking for an indulgence between friends, a sort of trust me on this, go with me on this, or he's aiming to preemptively make the film critic-proof? I definitely did not think of the latter because I always thought of Jean Cocteau as someone who was really kind of a critical darling from the beginning. I agree more with the former. He surrounded himself with friends, we see other people in the frame, including that great dog. And I think that he was saying, you may know me as a poet, 
But this film will not live in the ethereal nature of poetry. It will be something much more substantial. Well, it felt like a legitimate request to me, too. He leaned so much toward the avant-garde that this sort of meta-textual episode in the beginning of it is not out of character at all for him. And the feeling I got is going right along with what you're saying. His ethos that a film should be dictated by its emotional freight. But I do think he's aiming for poetry. I think we're maybe poetic realism, if you want to split hairs. Cocteau is one of those filmmakers that I often forget how much I love until I find myself wrapped up in one of his projects. And I think his appeal to me can easily be distilled into my favorite quote of his. I do not seek to please or conform to any standards, but I do request that I be understood. But if you want to quibble, I can see you taking the other side because he never really committed to either surrealism, poetic realism, nor did he focus on a single medium or discipline, which I think, contrary to what you said, negatively affected in the long run the way that he was viewed by the critical establishment. But who needs those bozos? He contained multitudes. Is it wrong or at all disingenuous for him to ask you to just relax and be transported for a while? Because it's certainly possible to read all sorts of things into the film. Cocteau's homosexuality, women in the place they occupied in post-war France, France's recovery from the war in general. He's inviting you, genuinely, I think, to take a break and enjoy this story. I do think that the pivotal year 1946 makes a huge difference in this. Another thing I'll be getting to in a little bit. I cannot imagine what it must have been like to be sitting there watching this feeling everything that you had just gone through. You had literally been liberated months before. All those deprivations, and as you mentioned, let's relax for a moment. I'm about to show you something spectacular. Well, let's get into Cocteau a bit more here. He was born in 1889, and it strikes me, this is just purely from a biographical standpoint, I feel like he's one of those people who was born fully formed. Do you mean wearing pants? standing up. And a jaunty cravat. I think he knew who he was right away. And he set about creating from a very young age as well. I also have this very distinct idea of him, and this all arises from the time that I first discovered who he was. Are you going to tell me the circumstances of that? Is that what we're about to hear? Because I'm curious how you first discovered him. I am. When I was a kid, I knew of the Cocteau twins, but I really didn't know what that was about. And then when I was about 19 years old, I found a print which lived on my walls for many years. And that was his Adam and Eve. So I had this beautiful thing that I loved to look at. And a friend at the time also gave me Isadora Duncan's autobiography. I don't know if you've ever read it. I have not. They both strike me as people who would say, everyone loved me. I was so beloved. I went everywhere and everyone <laughs> loved me and they threw roses at me wherever I went. Kindred spirits of mine, I would say that in that case. True. So I had this idea of him formed in my head before I even saw this film, which actually came a number of years later. And then I began to learn more and more and more all of the people that he was associated with who... I was reading about and learning about because in part of my obsession and my education in France and all things French. So he was associated with Proust and Guide and Barre. And then a person I think of really also furthering his artistic life, Picasso, Modigliani, Diaghilev. I could go on and on and on. And I think about Oslo and 
how we learn about these great periods of time where these people find each other and create these things together. And he wasn't just confined to one discipline. He was crossing over all sorts of boundaries, a playwright, a poet, a painter, a filmmaker. So he had threads going in every one of these schools. I also wonder as well, when we look back on his opium addiction, which he produced works throughout those periods of time when he was addicted, whether that also visually informed this film. I'm going to fast forward a bit and get to a really unpleasant period of time, taking us through World War II up through 1946 when this film was produced and came out. He was accused of collaboration. This was because he was already a pretty right-leaning person and managed to be convinced that Adolf Hitler was a pacifist and was going to be the greatest friend to French art. Sometimes when you are a dreamer to this extent, you are easily taken advantage of. He was cleared of the charges of collaboration. And I also wonder again, bringing back the discussion to his sexuality, which you had touched upon, how these lifelong relationships that he had, how they also could have possibly convinced him that sticking with Nazism was going to be a good way to go. Well, he certainly wasn't alone in France when it comes to that. Most people were hedging their bets. It wasn't a full-on embrace. It was either this or we just be demolished. Self-protection, I guess, at the very least. He had an incredibly lasting relationship with Jean Marais, our star. And it was Marais who actually suggested creating this film as well. Well, the influence of Cocteau's personal life on the film can be felt in a number of ways, from its source of inspiration, from the way his ill health affected the making of the film, and his sexual orientation. During the film, he was filled by blood poisoning, and he had to turn over some of the direction to René Clément. Whom we discussed in our Purple Noon episode. And this was beneficial in a number of ways. Cocteau had the imagination, but probably not the specific technical skill set to get the things from his head onto the screen. Clément, Henri Alacon, and all his other collaborators played significant roles in translating his vision. In his production diary, in fact, he goes back and forth complaining about being hampered by them on one hand to suggesting they be given freer reign because they have abilities that he does not. And left to his own devices, Cocteau was more prone to break cinematic rules than to follow them. A version with him alone at the helm would have been intriguing, but it likely would not have had the universal appeal or longevity that this version has. And also from that same diary, it is pretty clear that the beast's sense of guilt and shame echoes Cocteau's similar feelings surrounding his own sexuality, and the fact that his lover, Jean Marais, is playing the beast just further magnifies and complicates things. For example, it certainly adds layers to the beast pleading with Belle to never look in his eyes. Every time I hear that, I imagine an episode between Cocteau and Marais where this conversation is taking place in some context. And even more complicated, Marais was playing opposite of Mila Paralie, who was one of Belle's sisters. They had previously been married for two years. And I don't get the sense that any of this was overly acrimonious, but at the same time, it seems like it would have, at any given moment, been potentially a maddening experience. It didn't seem acrimonious, but the production certainly seemed plagued in all sorts of ways. You mentioned Henri Alacan, who we've also referred to in our Wings of Desire episode. 
He shot this in black and white, and that was because of war deprivations. However, I don't think you would ever really get the sense of that because of how extraordinarily beautiful every single element of the film is. It doesn't seem like it's impoverished. It doesn't seem like one of those poverty row pictures where necessity is the mother of invention. The set design, the cinematography, the art direction, the costuming, the music, extraordinary. The designs were meant to evoke scenes like Doré and Jan Vermeer. We have the extraordinary work of Christian Berhard and Escoffier, who created the costumes, who were also very well-known personages at the time, and great artists above all things. And one last person I want to mention before we move on is Georges Orhic, who did the music. He was part of this Les Six group, of which Jean Cocteau was at the center, and he was all about breaking musical conventions and always working against the establishment. So I mention all of this to give you a sense of what you are about to experience. So how about we get into the film? Once upon a time. We have the basic setup of the story, which is that the merchant father at the center of this family, of a feckless son, two greedy daughters, and a wonderful kind-hearted third daughter. Echoes of Cinderella and other fairy tales right away. It's a very fairy tale template to begin with. He has these ships at sea, and once they come into port, they're supposed to bring back all of these riches. But in the meantime, they're very much living this country life, as the two daughters aspire for greatness, as the son aspires for his next drink, and more time with his other feckless friend Avenant, who is played by Marais. I love the way that Avenant is introduced to begin the film. We meet him as he is shooting an arrow, which will be bookended at the opposite end of the film by him receiving an arrow. But the important thing to note is that we don't see his face. He stays hidden until his scene with Belle. It's as if he does not exist without her. Now Belle is the kind-hearted daughter, the one doing all of this work. While everyone else cannot seem to accept their own reality, she seems to exist outside of it when there is pleasure and love and family life and doing good work. She's the very definition of the dutiful daughter, while Avenal and Ludovic are the very definition of feckless layabouts. And while we're talking about feckless layabouts, how about these footmen? Always drunk, falling over haystacks, it seems like, at any given point. Belle, though, to me, is a completely blank slate. We don't really know what she greatly desires, if it's anything at all. I was really intrigued by this version right away, because it's got really earthy language like to hell with Belle, and may the devil himself splatter you with dung. What do you think about Belle in this? And I'm going to ask a bit of a follow-up first. Have you seen either of the two Disney versions? I haven't seen either one, and I'm not exactly sure why I'm not compelled to. I, I like Disney, especially the animated films. This story is always interesting to see how it's interpreted. I think it's just the fact that this one sets the bar so high for me that I just don't think I'm going to enjoy any other telling of it very much. The big difference in the later films, the Disney films, is that I think that they seek to give Belle agency when she doesn't really have it otherwise. You mean specifically within those films? She doesn't start with it nor develop it? Because I think she very much does in this in a very specific way. I cannot wait to hear your thoughts about that. 
before that, going back again to the Disney films, she starts out with huge aspirations, and it's all about getting out of her world, this small space that she's confined to. In the animated version, she is a book lover. She's educated, and she wants more education. In the latest version, she's also an inventor. And in both, there is definitely an unwanted suitor. Well, you telling me all that very definitely highlights for me why I think directors are keen to take on fairy tales. It's an opportunity to let your imagination run rampant. And to measure yourself against these tellers of tales previous, you're taking part in a centuries-old tradition, but very definitely putting your imprint and the imprint of your time upon it. The universal appeal of these stories and their timelessness and their adaptability makes them excellent vehicles for interpretation, so I can see why anyone would want to take that on. And I very definitely see the angle that she was playing when she wrote it in 1757 and the things that Cocteau was dealing with in 1946. I will highlight some of these instances where I think Bell has agency as we come to them in the chronology of the film. What struck me then and now and when we just watched it and when I hear it playing in my mind as I go to sleep are those first words of Avenant to Belle, which is Belle. It's a hiss. It's a caress. It's a whisper. But since it's coming from Avenant, there's this undercurrent of aggressiveness that makes it an ugly thing. Definitely. I think that there's almost a frightening element to it. That he is telling her what he feels. That he is telling her what she should feel. But her duty is to stay with her father. And at last, one of those ships has finally come back, so everyone thinks they're going to be rich. And this film adheres pretty closely to the 1757 story. The father is going to go pick up this wealth. He asks everyone what gift they would like him to bring back, and the daughters want riches. And all Belle asks for is a rose. Seems like a pretty simple request, right? But it's at that time when a rose could cause major conflict. I do want to mention before we go much further past this sequence, there is a fantastic shot where we see Belle, Ludovic, and Avenant framed by a candlestick that then fades into the next shot where their spaces are echoed by door, window, window. It's a simple little thing, but from their placement in the frame, she being symbolic of transition and the other two being symbolic of vacancy. There's always something to look at in this. There is always some intriguing angle to look at. And Cocteau fought with Alekin. He did not want him to use the latest cinematic techniques. He thought he was too artistic. Which is a strange thing for Cocteau to think, I would think. It goes back to that odd idea of a poet saying that this should not live in the ethereal realm of poetry. And yet it does. But I'll set that aside for the moment. So father goes to collect these riches. Fortunes seem to go up and down rapidly in this town. And this moneylender is awfully Fagany. To me, he was a lot more like Shylock. Sure, I guess take it back to an even further and more firmly established anti-Semitic tradition in literature. It definitely rubs me the wrong way when I see it. So unfortunately, the ship has returned with riches, but he is too late to collect them because the moneylenders, the collectors, were already in front of him. While at the same time, his feckless son Ludovic has sold everything else from underneath him. And so the father must return home in a storm with no moon. 
through this amazing forest as this tempestuous music plays. I was banking on the fact that this was going to be one of your favorite sequences. I don't know if that's true or not, but there are so many theatrical tricks involved, I couldn't see how you couldn't enjoy it. Everything from moving through the forest to where he enters the castle and everything that he encounters there. This and the moment later in slow motion when she's in sort of her dream sequence and there are all the sexual undertones, well, one of the many sections where there are sexual undertones which I found out later was actually all shot in reverse. These are my two favorite parts. This, again, is why I say there's always something to look at. Now, since you brought up the more recent versions of this, both animated and live action, how do you feel with animation versus CG versus these practical effects? Well, you know how I feel about animation. It's not my favorite thing by a long shot. Even though I do enjoy that, I like the music, it's got Jerry Orbach in it, and Angela Lansbury, I mean, come on. The latest version has some big problems, especially if we want to talk about sexual undertones. But this is just nothing short of extraordinary. To first see it as a young person who had already had many, many, many films under my belt. To watch those trees part. To see those armed sconces extend out and the candles light themselves. To see that everything is fantasy, that everything is alive and not, and cursed and not. To see the Turkish faces in the fireplace come alive. It wove itself around me in a truly unforgettable manner. I think the big advantage for me of these practical effects over anything CG in the more recent version... The psychological effect of usually inanimate objects being obviously alive is a really effective way to dissolve that boundary between human and inhuman. A candlestick or a teapot is benign, even friendly. It's there in service to you. So we can accept these non-threatening manifestations and it makes it even easier to confront and become comfortable with the notion of a half-man, half-animal. And the fact that it's all DIY and it looks like they built it all by hand, that aspect appeals to me very much. It's very much in that theater tradition of getting a lot out of a little. It's one thing to be able to conjure the spirit of dark magics, but it's another thing to be able to do that on a budget. It's astounding to me what they were able to pull off. Cocteau himself was still getting food packages sent from a friend in America. He had to rely on American penicillin. That makes me think of the third man, actually, quite a bit. We talked about the use of black and white as a necessity. No two batches of film were exactly alike. Equipment was old and broke down. They would have to work without electricity because it would be cut off. They were constantly having to scramble for fabric, these luscious, luscious fabrics. Cocteau himself had eczema so terrible that he actually had to create a veil for himself made of paper with holes for his eyes and mouth. And yet there's this enchantment, which the father at first doesn't realize. He sees only this meal that was left out for him. And this atmosphere that we have been describing is incredible. The busts on the fireplace are alive, smoke pouring from their mouth and nose. And the clock above the fireplace begins to chime, and is a tolling bell Ever a good sign? Do you hear the stroke of 12 and think, oh, great. I'm a little biased because I think we have 150 clocks in this house and all I can ever hear is the ticking down of my life. Well, the thing that you don't hear is the roar of the beast. And that's what awakens her father after he has fallen into a fitful sleep 
full of food and drink. The father goes to leave, and I thought that this was a direct connection back to this idea of trying to evoke these Vermeer paintings. Outside, we see rows and rows of these different dog statues, but evidently that was already existing in this amazing location that they shot at. I particularly love that detail. You could have had all sorts of exotic and regal animals, but no, the most noble, loyal animal that you could pay tribute to, there's just row after row of dogs. There's one stag, but there's almost all dogs otherwise. I always think of them as fidelity in art history. Speaking of the stag, though, we do find a dead deer. Not just dead, but savaged. It has been ripped open. And at the same time, the father spies his opportunity to bring back this gift for Belle. He sees a rose. And with the plucking of that rose, we meet the beast. You would think if he was fair about it, he would have at least put a sign up by the rose bush saying, My most prized possession. Or, ne touchez pas. Does that mean free, take one? I'll teach you those super important words before we go back to France. Okay, great. Stay off the grass, sentence of death. Exactly, like, you have 15 minutes to prepare to die, the beast says, unless one of your daughters will return to repay your debt within three days. So, like any good father with a dutiful daughter, he completely sells her out and hits the road. Absolutely, he says, I'll take it, see ya. Now, I think it would be remiss of us at this point to not say right here, this may be the greatest makeup in cinema history. So extraordinary, and Murray talks about taking 13 hours a day to construct and deconstruct this costume, how amazingly it was put together. And then Cocteau, I think, adds very importantly that it was actually Murray who then put this over the top. In my opinion, he said, one must have Marais' passion for his work and his devotion to his dog to persevere as he did in deserting the human race for the animal race. That's the thing about this makeup. I guess I couldn't have put it into words any better than that. It completely suspends my disbelief. It's not just a brilliant design. I completely buy in. I believe it from the first second that I see it until the last. The father certainly believes in the beast, and as he is taken back home on this special magic white horse, he tells everyone about this deal. The sisters all blame Belle because it was her rose that caused all of this. Ludo and Avenal swear to go kill the beast, and Belle volunteers to go, saying that she would rather be eaten than die of grief. Going so far as to sneak out to take her father's place, she clearly has more fortitude than all of these other characters combined. My favorite sentiment, though, is expressed by the other sisters who say, send everyone after the beast. He'll eat them and we'll be princesses. <laughs> And now Belle is drawn in slow motion up and forward to her fate. Does it strike you as odd that it took until 1946 for a feature film version of this to be made? There was a 1934 short by the same title, but it's not the same story. It's notable because it's the first of the Merry Melodies to be directed by Frizz Freeling, but it's not even close to the same fairy tale. And it was certainly not all that sophisticated. As a rule, Animation wasn't regularly that magical yet. You had Fantasia in 1940, along with a couple of other examples from the surrounding years. But live-action features typically did more enchantment and magical, better and more often than animated features did. And so, 
We get so much of that here. The shots of her gliding through the hallway. The beautiful slow motion shots. The door announcing itself to her. The statuary all being alive. It's overwhelming. The door and the mirror are that same voice. Belle. Cocteau sure loves his mirrors. There's a lot of images of duality throughout this. And essentially everything else that he ever made. It was clearly a preoccupation of his. It strikes me also that you see someone else so much more clearly than you do yourself. The mirror is not an opening into your own soul. It's to see something else that's happening. She sees that her father is very, very ill. And she goes out of her room and sees the beast for the first time. And she faints dead away. Something interesting about this shot that I noticed that I wanted to see what you thought about. Why do you think the first time he touches her, when he picks her up from this faint, the camera is removed, it's pulled back, and that scene is shot through a window rather than at the exact location where they are? There's another moment that I like in that same vein of filming them through a prison door almost. And I love that we are excluded from truly being able to look at him until a very key moment later on. So he picks her up, carries her back into the castle, and magically her gown changes as he carries her over the threshold of her room and places her on the bed. Clearly, like our creature from a Black Lagoon episode, we have a wedding night metaphor here. And this is the point where he pleads with her to never look into his eyes. I want to mention again in a little more detail that this is the moment, as you mentioned, when she is in true finery. She is left behind this world mired in mud as the person who was supposed to be the most simplistic, the person least likely to be swayed by finery. And now she's covered in it. She's dripping with it. Everywhere she turns, her eyes have to drink that in. Do we have mixed messages here about what we should be honoring and valuing? That is exactly what I was about to ask you, because throughout the portion of the film that is not involving Belle, we have a significant anti-greed tone, both with the extravagance of the sun and the predatory nature of the moneylenders. And then we have Belle surrounded by and luxuriating in all of this opulence. So this is a little bit of what I was thinking about when I asked early on, is Cocteau trying to critic-proof this film by asking you to approach it simplistically. Don't read too much into this. Sometimes a diamond-encrusted gown is just a diamond-encrusted gown. I wonder also if there's any element of we shouldn't feel badly about returning to our old ways of life. You mean in terms of France's recovery from the war? Yes. I think we'll have a little bit more of that to get into in the ending as well. And for now, we have this resplendent dinner. This is the scene that we reenacted at the top of the show. I only really noticed this time how she was playing with that knife as he's talking behind her. That's one of the little nods to agency that I was thinking about. This entire second act, beginning right here, is full of some of these contradictory things. We often talk, just like we did in the last episode, about how older films will often be a mixed bag when it comes to meeting contemporary standards of how people, in particular women, are treated. In this... He tells her clearly, repeatedly, she is in charge. She is the master here. He asks her permission for everything. He catalogs his shortcomings as dinner conversation. 
everything is in service to her, but he's just going to ask her one question every night. Will you be my bride? And then he makes a point after this first refusal to close what is essentially her cell door. We soon have an episode where he is disheveled from combat and she sees him for the first time in that state with his hands smoking and he invades her privacy. But she orders him from her room. She wanders the grounds at her leisure. So we have to take all these instances and balance them of Stockholm Syndrome versus all the instances where she exhibits this agency. She's feeling a lot of liberty. She's free from her domineering sisters for the first time. He listens to her when she talks, respects her decisions. He's kind and attentive. So the castle represents liberation in many ways, but none of this occurs at any point without him being her captor. Definitely, because you can only be a master if you have true freedom, which she does not. And it also kind of reminded me of that conversation in Creature from the Black Lagoon where she has to justify why she stays there or why she is rejecting him or why he's maybe not so terrible as if she has to placate his feelings. In Belle's case, it's just from overwhelming kindness and generosity of spirit, I feel like. The episode where she offers to let him drink from her hands. She's just genuinely a good person and wants no living thing to suffer. That's the moment I was thinking of where we truly get to see him. It is so extraordinary to finally see that close-up, followed by the one of hers, where we really get to look at her for the first time. So I think that she's definitely softening, but it feels like she has to. Now, I see this drinking of the water from her hands as incredibly sexual. There's almost nothing in this that isn't, because I think the biggest thing about the agency that I'm talking about is that. That is the core issue, where these more modern versions of it, a sexually liberated woman is not an odd thing. It's not an uncommon occurrence. It certainly was in 1757, and it still was in 1946 to a lesser degree. So what you have with this version, essentially, metaphorically, she is no longer bound in virginal duty to her father. She is embarking on her first adult sexual adventure here, and it is definitely underlined by the fact that every time he comes back in from combat or savagery, guess what door he comes knocking on? There is a great deal of physical intimacy here, and this was directly talking about forced marriage, which was a reality of the time. But if we come back again to this agency, which she may or may not have, how different would this have felt if it were not in the land of fairy tale, but if he were an actual man, different from the one she had back home who was pestering her to marry him? but whom she may still have been held captive to because of financial circumstances. Instead, here we have an actual beast, and I think most people are actually rooting for the beast. I wonder if you think part of this is about our fascination with the other, and specifically in this instance with exoticism. If you've been in enough Western art museums, you will see sections of paintings that represent this late 19th century movement. And that definitely showcased our obsession with what was called quote-unquote Orientalism, the Middle East, Asia, exotic animals also specifically. That very well could be. I know in this 1946 audience, it very definitely touched a nerve, and there was distinct evidence of that. 
of what people preferred and how much the beast appealed to them, particularly the women who viewed the film, because Cocteau recounted receiving letter after letter after letter of people complaining about the prince's appearance post-transformation back to a regular human being. People were definitely rooting for the beast. I feel the same, and I definitely felt the same in the first Disney Beauty and the Beast as well. The way we view these stories has changed so much. What does it say about the dearth of good men available in these films that the one who is holding her hostage is far and away the most appealing, the nicest, most respectful, most attentive man that she has ever encountered? Cocteau said that his aim was to make the beast so human, so sympathetic, so superior to men that his transformation into Prince Charming would come as a terrible blow to Belle condemning her to a humdrum marriage and a future with a whole bunch of kids. And so he had Henri Alacan shoot Jean Marais in what he called such a saccharine style. <laughs> Bingo. Congratulations. Nailed it. And now will she try to use a bit of that upper hand that he tells her that she has in order to try to go back to see her father because he is so ill? He shows her Diana's pavilion, which is the spot on his property where no one may go. And he gives her the key. Depending on which generation you come from, this is the ultimate sign of trust slash manipulation is what it feels like. Into another place, the symbol of which is supposed to be one of the strongest women ever. In addition to the key, he gives her this other important magical object, which is this glove that if she puts on, she'll be immediately at home. Once again, this transportation effect is spectacular. I love the way they do these things. She returns home and tries to explain this friendship that she has with this monster who was good. While back at home, everyone else has been forced to work, and she can't even bestow any kindness upon them. As she tries to give away her necklace, it turns to garbage in their hands. And then my favorite line here, another justification, she tells them, he would never eat me, wink wink. The family is again back to their old ways, the boys plotting to kill the beast so that they can take all of his riches. The sisters are in on it by plotting to beg her to stay so that they can steal the key. Meanwhile, the beast is waiting impatiently for her even touching her things and caressing the things that have covered her body. Another instance of if this was a human being doing this, not so exotic, but more creepy. Call the police. The white horse has arrived for her, and the sisters have taken the key. They also find the mirror where they see their own hideousness. One of them is a monkey, my favorite part. And the boys get on the horse to be taken back to the castle. Belle puts the glove back on and is returned to the castle to find the beast passed out. She's arrived too late. He's dying. Tellingly, as she's transported back this last time when she arrives, she's calling not just for the beast, but my beast. She tells him to scare death away, even as her brother and Avenal are climbing in through the top of the pavilion. It's Avenal who comes down the rope first and the Diana statue awakens and shoots him with an arrow. How complicated is the Diana symbol for you here? She's the goddess of the hunt, obviously, but also of chastity, childbirth, the moon, the protector and symbol of femininity, 
the controller of animals, standing guard over this symbol of opulence, treasure piled as high as the eye can see. And it's she who must spear him in order to kill him, in order to turn him into a beast. The one thing I did mention when you were just talking about Belle and the beast and her imploring him to fight for life. He never throws off that shame when he is in the beast phase. He specifically says beasts can only grovel and die. He should run some sort of incel subreddit. I don't know what that means. Incel. It's a portmanteau. It's constructed out of involuntary and celibate. It's the subreddits for those guys who are, I'm a nice guy. Why doesn't she like me? Why doesn't she go out with me? Oh, gross. Okay. If it were 2016 instead of 1946, the beast would be in a chat room publishing his manifesto. Well, speaking of gross, this reversal of the curse turns him back into this prince. And I do think it is a huge letdown. What, you got something against fancy lads? You got something against silk trousers? I do. I don't really like this kind of coy conversation that they have now, where Belle reveals that she actually did love Avenant but never told him, and that she also loved the beast. Is she disappointed that he looks like this Avenant? Yes, no. So what Cocteau is trying to tell us, I suppose, is this what you're saying, that the ladies want a prince in the streets and a beast in the sheets? Is that what the deal is? <laughs> I think so. Because I have to say, I have no skin on the game whatsoever, and even I am disappointed in this bland post-transformation state that he's in. But basically they say, let's hit it. We're going back to this opulent kingdom where you're going to be queen. Thankfully, we don't have to hear any more of that, and we can just watch them fly through the air. They literally ascend into the clouds, and it's happily ever after, so we assume. But this is the last thing that I was thinking about, the agency issue, and specifically how this comes down from Jean-Marie Beaumont. She claimed the story was inspired by her failed marriage to a man who professed elegance but turned out to be a beast. And so now that Belle is embarking, truly embarking, on this first sexual adventure of her life, it says something slyly subversive to me here that it begins with a note of disappointment mixed into the happily ever after. Because it's clearly Belle's fantasy when it comes down to it. It's her point of view that we are seeing for the most part. And I mean fantasy in the fantastic sense, in the way that Cocteau intended it, probably not the way that people think of the connotation nowadays. But I really admire both Beaumont for putting that in the original text and Cocteau for leaving it. So here's why I came to this film in the first place. I was watching TCM and Robert Osborne told me that Greta Garbo, after watching this film and coming to the end, immediately said, give me back my beast. And I knew I had to watch it. And based on Cocteau's mailbag and the things that you've said since then, you still feel that way. I do, and I would challenge anyone to find any human being on the face of this earth that would see that prince and choose him. <laughs> I wanted to come back to something here since we're at the end, and it is that fulfillment of the idea of the simple life versus this plushness that we end on. Where do you ultimately come down on that decision? Well, it wouldn't be much of a fairy tale if it didn't end on happy, successful, rich. That's the overwhelming dream. I can't think of one of these stories in which the reward for being 
penitent, hardworking, noble, and loyal is to go back to your punch clock at 9 a.m. on Monday morning. That or gout. I do think that ultimately we are looking at a covering of something much darker that you've mentioned. The undercutting of any of this gloriousness with some reality that's being snuck in here. Well, Cocteau always championed the idea that you can't have anything fantastic without some of it being grounded in reality. You need something for that to work against. And the way he deploys it just in this minor key moment at the very end is a bit of genius. So is that also your overwhelming motivation for choosing it for the show? Did we cover that well enough? Give you back your beast? I think I probably have pages and pages here of going off on huge French tangents, and I'll just leave that for another day. But hopefully we've done enough for those people who haven't gotten to this yet, or maybe it's been a while for you, to find it, discover it, fall into it. And how about your recommendation? Well, this is another thing that I recommend that people fall into. It's one of my other favorite pieces of cinematic enchantment. And that is A Midsummer Night's Dream from 1935, directed by Max Reinhardt and William Dieterle. It stars Olivia de Havilland in her screen debut and has a huge cast, including James Cagney and Mickey Rooney. It's one of William Shakespeare's most popular and most performed works and is about the impending marriage of the Duke of Athens and the surrounding comical intrigue involving other young lovers, fairies, and a troupe of actors. It's not the strongest adaptation of Shakespeare that I've ever seen, but in terms of magic and atmosphere, I like it so much that even the presence of Dick Powell can't ruin it. I thought you could not resist by mentioning his name and trash-talking him. Of course not. And there are also a number of cool tangential connections to the film that we talked about today. The forest as a magical realm, human-to-animal transformation, flowers, arrows, and the nature of true love. It really is a wonder to look at, and I highly recommend it for that reason, if nothing else. And what about you? Everything that you just mentioned about your film would apply to mine as well, and the same reason I chose mine. Dick Powell's in yours? Nope. I picked The Red Shoes from 1948. To me, well, not just me, to the world, another truly amazing entry in world cinema that will hopefully live for eternity. The Red Shoes was written, directed, and produced by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, whom we've mentioned on the show before, known as The Archers. It stars Maura Shearer, Anton Walbrook, and Marius Goring. It's about a ballerina who joins an established ballet company and becomes the lead dancer in a new ballet called The Red Shoes, also based on the fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen. Then she finds that she must make a devastating choice. It looks like a fever dream. It feels like nothing else I've ever seen before, even though that choice I mentioned is very much grounded in reality. I think it's another example of how this agency or lack thereof in the life of a woman can mean so much. It's also truly extraordinary. And so I don't think you can go wrong as usual with either of our two great recommendations, A Midsummer Night's Dream and The Red Shoes. And that brings us to the end of episode 73. First and foremost, this time around, I wanted to say a special thanks to Greg Nordland, who has become our most recent Patreon supporter. Thank you, Greg. We appreciate that a great deal. If you would be interested in supporting the show that way and checking out all the cool bonus content and perks we have over there, you can just go to patreon.com magiclantern. How 
many episodes are we up to now? 20? We are up to 21. We've got 21 bonus episodes over there for everyone to check out if they donate at the $5 a month level. It's great fun for us to do. I love coming up with new ideas and new films that might not necessarily fit in the regular podcast, but we can't wait to talk about in the mini episodes. So check out our Patreon and you'll find all that stuff there. And we are very grateful for any support at any level. Otherwise, if you'd just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those places. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to the people who have shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Andy Wolverton, Keith Rich, Maritza Gulin, Grindhouse Dave, Tim Lego, Mike Scharf, Brian Sauer, Tim and Leon at the Yaga Day podcast, the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, and Nicole Davis. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio. Just about anywhere that you find podcasts, you'll find us there. If you would like to leave us a review or rating via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 